Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kimes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture. I'm Will Kynes. And I'm Ronnie Cosman. And in this episode, we're discussing the relationship between archaeology and the Gospels with Dr. James Strange. Dr. James Strange is the Charles Jackson Grenade and Elizabeth Donald Jackson Grenade Chair in New Testament in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies here at Samford University, where Will and I both teach. Uh, he is also the director of the Shekhin Excavation Project in Israel, which we'll hear more about in a second. And James has uh, edited uh, these, this is actually uh, two-volume work with uh, David Finnessy, Galilee in the Late Second Temple and Mishnaic Periods. Uh, he's also uh, the author of The Emergence of the Christian Basilica. And he has a forthcoming book that's coming out with Erdman's, uh, titled Excavating the Land of Jesus, How Archaeologists Study the People of the Gospels. Thanks for joining us, James. Thank you very much for having me. So, James, what first drew you to the intersection of New Testament studies and archaeology? I have to confess it was my father. Uh, I grew up as the son of an archaeologist who had a Ph.D. in New Testament but began digging actually during his uh the time he was getting his PhD. And as I started thinking about what I wanted to do, especially as I started thinking seriously about it and combining it with my education, that was the direction that I went. And I can remember calling him, uh, I, I was resistant to the idea for a long time, but I can remember calling him uh, one evening uh, many, many years ago and saying, okay, dad, let's just say hypothetically that I decided I want to do what you do and uh, dig and teach New Testament. And he said, he took me completely seriously. He just said, well, there's no program yet that exists like that. So you're gonna have to do a, a straight New Testament PhD where the New Testament folks won't take you seriously. And then you're gonna have to do the archeology span on the side, but you're gonna have to do it well enough that the archeologists take you seriously. So that's what I ended up doing. Now, there's a fun story about this actually, which is that James's father, he taught at USF, right, in Tampa? Right, University of yeah. South Florida in Tampa. Uh, and that's where my extended family is from. And my grandmother, late in life, decided to take some classes at University of South Florida and even went on a dig with James's father oh, wow. uh, in Israel. Uh, and this is long before I ever met him, yeah. so then it wasn't like I recommended right, this is right. what you should do. And so when I came to Samford, we we made that connection, which is yeah, which is crazy. So my grandmother was a wonderful woman, and she, I mean, she was in her sixties, I think, when she did this dig. But she was climbing up and down oh. into the, in, you know, into the, into the holes in the ground and digging away with all these young folks, because that's you know a lot of the people who are digging are college students and other yeah. young people. Yeah. What's the technical term for the hole in the ground, yeah. Jim? <laughs> we, the technical term on, in our uh, excavations is an area. I know that doesn't sound very technical. <laughs> and, and But the one we use most often is square because it's a square hole in the ground. I guess you okay. could call it a trench as well. Okay. Not okay. pit. Pit doesn't work. We don't often use pit. Pit we use to describe what ancient people dug and that we excavate. Okay. okay. 
All right. You so you're already getting schooled by, <laughs> in the world of archaeology. You know, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, Will and I both, you know, are we tend to be very liter- literarily focused, right? So it's really interesting, I think, to be able to talk to someone who is an archaeologist, right? Yes. Very different approaches and uh, insights, I think, that we can get. Well, you now, know, you're right uh, about that. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I was, you know, as I was writing, kind of preparing for our talk today, I was sort of thinking about it. I thought, you know, I still am really heavily influenced by thinking about the text when mm-hmm. I do archaeology. You know, there are archaeologists who kind of use textual studies very in a very ancillary way, but uh, but I really do think about an integration. Uh, so, yeah. so and I'm you're, I mean, James, oriented. you've also published on the book of James, right? The moral world of James. Oh, well, I did do that. That was for my dissertation. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, you, you've done work like on the text of the, of the New Testament directly, right? Yeah. Just straight. Yeah. New Testament textual studies. Yeah. 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 Well, and on the other side, I mean, even though I am more literary in my interests, uh, that I did do a dig when I was doing my PhD, okay. and I do find archaeology just fascinating. Uh, so I'm excited for this conversation that we're going to have. I think I feel like it's like learning a different language. It really, is in a lot, in a lot of, ways. of ways. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we got um, a, all right, we got James. So you're jargon. the director of the Shaheen excavation project in Israel. That's right. Uh, and you take students there every summer. Is that correct? Every summer that I can. You know, COVID interrupted us for two years straight. Yeah. yeah. Now, can you tell us a little bit about that project? What is it? Where is it? What do you do there and what the significance of that site is? Well, sure. Uh, it's a little, it's a small site. It was a small Jewish village. When I say Jewish village, I mean that the population was either entirely Jewish or mostly Jewish. And it was occupied some, from some time in the late second century through, uh, that's BC, through the middle of the fourth century AD. Uh, it's right about in the middle of the Lower Galilee, which is the southern part. Lower actually means lower in elevation, but it actually coincides with southern. Uh, and it's very close to a large Roman city. So uh, this city, city called Sepphoris or Sipori in Hebrew is very close by, just about a 30-minute, 20-minute walk away. So I sometimes think about our little village as, a, as something like a suburb of Sepphoris. And uh, we started digging at the site because it had been surveyed way back in 1988 by a team from the University of South Florida, which my father directed. And they had identified the site and they had identified a lot of areas of archeological interest, but had never started digging there. And when we finally closed down the US of excavations in 2010, I was thinking, well, what do I wanna do next? Where do I wanna take students to learn archaeological method and what do I want to investigate? What do I think is the next step in our questions about the Galilee in the Roman period? And there were a lot of possibilities, but I thought Shekin was probably a good one and it turned out to be a good one. Uh, The earlier surveys had determined that uh, it was probably a pottery production center during the Roman period. And that was based on inferences actually from rabbinic literature that mentioned the quality of the pottery that was produced there. They combined, they uh, compared it to iron pots. And uh, so evidence of that was found during the survey. What we started finding when we started digging was scads of evidence, lots of evidence for pottery production. But then a couple of surprising things. Usually uh, when you start digging in a village of this type, somebody else has already been there to survey it, like ours. 
But there was a very mm -hmm. famous, there's been a famous series of surveys that happened at the end of the 19th century. And most of the Galilean synagogues that are known have been already mapped out. And even if they're excavated within the 20th century, they were known earlier. Well, nobody had found the synagogue at Shechin. But uh, during that survey, we found some archaeological, or some evidence for that they had a, a synagogue there. So we started excavating that uh, structure. And that's, that's important just in the history of archaeology to find a, a previously unknown synagogue of the period. And then something else that nobody had known about was uh, oil lamp production, ceramic oil lamp production uh, during the Roman period in the Galilee. And we started finding evidence for that. So the, the site of Shechin has become very important among archaeologists in any case for giving us this new kind of evidence. Uh, just this summer, we started finding evidence that they were making an imitation of a very fine pottery, usually imported uh, from Cyprus and other places. Uh, but they were making imitation forms locally. At least we think that. That's that's kind of a, an early announcement. We have to we have to do some elemental analysis to make sure that we're actually <laughs> seeing what we you think we're seeing. You heard it here, folks. Heard <laughs> it first here, right? That's right. <laughs> Um, no, uh, kind of like kind of like how people make these, you know, imitation purses. And <laughs> that's right. Yeah, we have the Louis Vuitton. Uh, <laughs> so you can't really do, uh, you can't talk about archaeology without a little bit of show and tell. So um, if you're listening to this as a podcast, we do have a YouTube channel where you can mm -hmm. be watching our episodes. And we asked James if he could show us a little bit of the, you know this. Uh, these lamp, this lamp making production that they have, you've kind of sorted out how they actually did that, and you have something that you can show us about that. Maybe you could explain for those who are listening, but we do encourage you jump over to YouTube if you're not watching on YouTube right now so that you can actually see this. Can you show us, James? Sure. Actually, I'm going to get one that's not worked on yet. So uh, I'll link it to the Gospels in the Gospel of John when Jesus does the uh, miracle of. Uh, changing water into wine at the wedding in Cana, the author mentions these stone jars used for pur purification. Well, in digs all over Judea in the south, in and around Jerusalem, and in Galilee in the north, and even southeastern Galanitis, which is today's Golan Heights, when you dig in a village like ours, you find uh, fragments of or complete vessels made out of soft chalk, which is a, a kind of limestone. And some of those are turned on a lathe, and when they, when they cut out the interior, what remains is what we call a core, this chalk core. And you can see the ridges on it made from the lathe chisel, which is held still or moves slowly into the vessel. So, uh, so this would have been the, uh, the, the starting point for the, the, the uh, chisel, which would have moved down. And as they cut down to the bottom, they would have popped out this core. So this is waste material. Well. Uh, some enterprising people found out that they could slice it down the middle and uh, carve uh, the mold for making lamps into the flat face. Now, what I held earlier and what I'm holding in my hands now is actually a core dating to the first century AD from one of these production sites in Galilee. I went there with the guy, his name is Yeshu Dre. Uh, his name, Yeshu, means Jesus, and Israelis actually call him Jesus. Uh, he's an Israeli uh, expert in ancient technology. He's, he took me to the site and we recovered many of these cores. Well, he figured out the technology for for making these uh, lamp molds. So he does now um, 
these workshops all over the place in Israel and in the U.S. where people get to carve their own lamp molds and then make lamps in them. Uh, and this summer, we had a really exciting bit of experimental archaeology where we made lots and lots of lamps, and then he, he made a, a replica of a small kiln that we found at our site and fired it and fired oil lamps that we had made, and it was really a very thrilling experience. So, so that uh, casing that you're holding there, you said the casing is from the first century. Right. Is also the, um, I guess, the carving out to making it into a mold for lamps. Is that also done in the first century? No, that was done by Yeshu. Okay, okay. But he, okay. he followed our ancient some... patterns. Uh, you, I don't you can see that this one is, you can see it has a bunch of little dots in it. Those are actually yeah. little pomegranates. Uh, and that's one of that's one of the patterns that we find both in our lamp molds and on lamps. So you have dug up some of these molds. Oh yes, very okay. very many of them. They're almost all okay. fragmentary. Yeah. So this one is this one is a, this one is a replica. Yeah. Yes, that's right. But you find the you have found these where there have actually been you know. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty industrious, right, yeah. to take the scraps and to then, like, you know, repurpose them for other things, which is yeah. really fascinating. It really is. It's just sort of an economy of effort that we, we're always saying that they follow. Sure enough, yeah. they do. Yeah. Well, let's turn to um, interpreting archaeological finds like the ones that you just mentioned. What are the biggest differences between scholars in terms of how they might approach relating archaeology with the text of the Gospels? Well, there are a couple of different ways of doing it. Um, often, when archaeologists are trying to talk about what archaeology is, sometimes they engage in a little bit of apologetics, and they'll say something like, well, you know, people like to use archaeology to think about proving the Bible to be true, or something like that. And archaeologists are, are very rarely trying to do that, although if you go on YouTube, maybe where you're watching this, uh, you'll see lots of videos that are purporting to prove something about the Bible to be true. But for the most part, archaeologists are, are thinking differently, which I'll talk about in just a second. Another way to think about using archaeology is to help illustrate the Bible. So uh, if, for example, you want to know what a lamp might have looked like when Jesus tells a parable of wise and foolish virgins with lamps or not putting a lamp under a bushel basket or something like that, well, we can show you what a lamp looked like. Or if you want to imagine what kind of bowl of water Jesus might have used when washing the disciples' feet at the beginning of uh, chapter 13 of John, then, you know, we can show you what a bowl might have looked like. Uh, archaeologists tend to think about that kind of archaeology as serving some other purpose other than an archaeological purpose. So for the most part, archaeologists are interested in ancient peoples. They want to know, uh, they call it recovering the social world or the social reality, if possible, of ancient peoples. And so archaeology is a major tool for doing that. For places and periods for which we also have texts, like the Gospels, then we also use texts to help us do that. So uh, uh, often we think about using both archaeology and, say, the Gospels to kind of interpenetrate one another and even to correct one another or to correct the ideas that we derive from both of them to help us arrive at what we think is a more accurate reconstruction of the social world. I know that sounds kind of technical, but uh, it may be a bit complicated, but that's, that's kind of how we think about things. So archaeologists tend to move the digging into the forefront uh, 
But like I said, you know, I'm I'm pretty uh, textually oriented myself, so I'm constantly thinking of the text uh, when I'm doing archaeology and constantly thinking about archaeology while I'm looking at the text. What do you find particularly challenging about relating the, you know, the literary text of the Gospels to the kind of archaeological data that you find? I think both digging and reading texts present similar challenges because both are interpretive exercises. So the text doesn't interpret itself. We, that's our job. And the archaeological evidence doesn't interpret itself either. We have to interpret it. And uh, both, I should say, neither bit of evidence was produced with us in mind. <laughs> so, you know, the, uh, the people who lived at Shekhin weren't thinking about us digging up their stuff. You know, they weren't strategically leaving clues about what their life was like. Uh, we, we find the things that got left behind, but only the parts that are in more or less permanent media like stone or ceramics or something like that. We don't find wood, we don't find cloth, we don't find hair. Uh, so we're missing a whole bunch of the material culture. So we're asking questions that they're not interested in answering for us. We have to make lots of inferences. And something similar happens with textual uh, reading as well. Often we're interested in things that the authors weren't trying to tell us. Uh, we're at, so we're asking questions that the texts aren't trying to answer. So I call that, I think, uh, probably one of the biggest challenges for both interpreting the text and for interpreting the archaeological data. Yeah, I think there can be a tendency people think because archaeology is digging up concrete stuff that mm. it's objective. Yeah. But textual interpretation is subjective. And you're suggesting there's an element of subjectivity to the interpretation in both of these arenas. Yeah, we have to. Uh, I'm telling folks all the time on our dig, you know, it's our job to interpret it. You know, the easiest thing is to collect the data and to collate it and to say, OK, we found so many pots or so many coins of this period. But then to start interpreting, that's that's really a, one of our most important jobs. And. We have to do it. And it's, yeah, it can get subjective sometimes. Well, let's take a look at a couple of passages uh, and we'll think with James and hear what he does as an archaeologist when he encounters, uh, you know, these texts. Uh, so the first one is Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to, through six, 16 from the Sermon on the Mount. And um, let's, so verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. People do not light a lamp and put it under the bushel basket. Rather, they put it on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Uh, so why don't we begin with the phrase in verse 14, James, a city standing on a hill cannot be hid. What do you think when you read that phrase? Well, archaeologists of the time and the region that we're talking about immediately think of that city I told you about called Sepphoris, which is a city on a hill just about in the dead geographical center of Galilee, visible from all around, in particular in, you know, when it was a city. Well, actually, it was a pretty good-sized town all the way up to 1948. And, you know, if we have stone and plastered stone buildings, maybe even a walled city on top of a hill, this thing is highly visible. So, you know, on one level, we just imagine Jesus pointing to Sepphoris and saying, you know, city on a hill cannot be hid. <laughs> they, they don't have to imagine this. Uh, so that's one way that we think about it, of course. But uh, when we hear that, we also remember that 
no gospel ever puts Jesus in a city of the Galilee. They put him in the region of cities. Uh, they mention being in, well, one, we have one textual variant that puts him in a region of Magdala. Uh, Sepphoris is absent from the text, except for one textual variant in Codex Biza. Uh, Tiberius, which is on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, a great big city, completely absent. Uh, so Jesus actually goes to regions of cities outside of Galilee, like Tyre and Sidon. Eventually he gets to Jerusalem, but in terms of his ministry in Galilee, the cities are just absent. And we, we notice that and we start asking questions uh, that, that get to these great big questions about social world. So we begin to say, okay, first of all, is Jesus avoiding cities? And if he is, is that something that a lot of Jews in Galilee are doing? Or is it something that's specific to him? And if it is specific to him, well then why? Why is he, why is he not ministering in cities? So far as we can tell, uh, we also might ask, well, do gospel authors for some reason uh, not want to put him in cities? Or does the early Christian tradition before the gospels get written somehow forget or leave out the stories of cities? I'm one of the readers that says, well, probably Jesus is avoiding them for some reason. Uh, that is, we're getting some, some idea of where he decided to put his energy, which is in villages and countryside, which really stands out. Uh, so we start to ask questions about this. Uh, start, start to try to make inferences about what we see in the text and what we see when we excavate, and to wonder, are we seeing some sort of reason for avoiding cities? I'll just give you one example. So when we excavate in small villages with Jewish populations, we find scads of coins that were minted under the Hasmoneans. So these are, by the time that Jesus is, is around, these are already 200 years old, 150 years old. Uh, well, actually a little bit less than that. Um, but they're still apparently being used. They're going to be used for another 100 years or so. Uh, we also very rarely find a great big city from a big great big city coin from the city of Sepphoris. We don't find those in these little villages for the most part. Uh, we tend to find very few of them. So we begin to ask, is this some kind of indication that people are engaging in an economy that's bypassing the city markets and it is focused on villages and interconnectedness between villages? There's something in the city that they're trying to avoid. Now you can tell that that with asking those kind of questions, you can quick, quickly lead yourself into sort of a teetering tower of speculation. So you have to be quite careful. Uh, but but we, it's not that one text in Matthew causes us to ask those questions. Is that the text in Matthew leads us to what we know about the archaeology of the region and the landscapes, and that's what causes us to start asking these questions. Yeah, well, even the way that, you know, envisioning the scene here, right. it's outside of the city, yeah. looking at the city yeah. and its light. <clears throat> right. So that reflects that kind of context. And, yeah. And you, it'd be very easy to overlook that. Right. But one of the fascinating things about archaeology is it opens our eyes to these features of the text that we would not notice otherwise. Right. Well, let's move on to the language of light 
here in this passage. So you are the light of the world. People do not light a lamp and put it under the bushel basket. Rather, they put it on the lampstand and it gives light to all in the house. So from your archaeological perspective, how would you illuminate this verse here? (laughs) I'll begin with my textual perspective, actually, because when I see that you are the light of the world, I immediately begin thinking about uh, how thick light is with meaning in the biblical text, probably in, in many texts, but you know, the light imagery in the Bible starts in in the third verse of Genesis when God creates light and then not until the fourth day creates things that make light. And I think right away, you know, that's that's a pretty uh, a pretty important theological claim that's being made right there early on. So I hear Jesus saying, you are the light of the world and quite clearly thinking figuratively and theologically about this idea. And, uh, and I start making these textual connections. Uh, but of course, then I start wondering, well, he's talking about not just light, but he shifts the conversation or the parable to a, uh, something that makes light, a lamp, an object. And I go, well, you know, first of all, I know what those lamps look like. <laughs> but then I begin to ask, well, um, does the object that makes the light also start to carry uh this kind of meaning with it as well. It's not just the flame, it's the thing that makes the flame. And uh, so I'll just, I'll just point out a couple of things that we've learned about these lamps. There's, I wish I had an example to show you. It's a very plain kind of a lamp. Unlike the, the mold that I showed you earlier, it's a kind of lamp that's thrown on a wheel. So it's a little itty bitty circular lamp with a nozzle stuck on the end after they turned the, the bowl part on a wheel. And we used to call these things Herodian lamps because they're, they start to be made during the reign of Herod, Herod and they, they, are continued, they continue to be made uh, during the reigns of his uh, offspring until somewhere around 70 when the temple in Jerusalem are destroyed. Uh, so uh, turns out both Jewish people and non-Jewish people are using these lamps and they can make them out of their own clays from their own towns. But a team of scientists uh, headed up by a guy named David Adon Biowitz uh, did some neutron activation analysis. They looked at clays in and around Jerusalem, and then they looked at examples of these kinds of lamps excavated in the north. And so they could say, okay, first of all, in northern cities, even in uh, cities without much Jewish population, we can say that some of their lamps come from Jerusalem, uh, or at least from clay uh, dug up at Jerusalem. However, we can show you that at, at cities that have some Gentile, but then big Jewish populations, more than 80% of the lamps come from Jerusalem. And in villages that we looked at with uh, almost entire or exclusively Jewish populations, more than 90% of their lamps come from Jerusalem, at least of the sample that they looked at. Well, that, that's quite significant. That shows then that human beings are somehow getting in between these two regions. And uh, we start thinking about what, what would cause people to do that. One, one answer is simply uh, economy, that people are bringing lamps from the south to sell them in the north. We also have the practice of pilgrimage. And we see that in the Gospels, in particular in Luke, uh, early on in Jesus's life, you know, we get the impression that his family is making regular pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So. So these guys are doing this neutron activation analysis, and very cautiously at the end of that chapter, they say, 
we might be looking at a result of pilgrimage. And uh, if they are, of course, we're asking a question about what does this light from Jerusalem now symbolize? And of course, we know about the menorah in the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, so we begin to speculate. It's a kind of speculation we can never prove, but we, uh, but it does help remind us that these are human beings who are thinking uh, as deeply about their uh, practices and their objects as anybody else is. Uh, you know that this one small lamp could not merely illuminate the house, but it could represent uh, God's presence among God's people in the household. And of course, the textual guy in me sees house, and I think not only of the house, but I think of the house of God in Jerusalem, and I think of how now, you know, if we think about where God dwells, well, uh, the entire world is God's house, uh, especially if we're thinking about Mark maybe being written after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and we're thinking about the proclamation of the gospel. Well, you know, as I said, this is all stuff that we begin to think about you know, just based on one little piece of the text. Yeah, I love how that goes from neutron activation analysis <laughs> to the theological significance of God's gospel for the world. Only an archaeologist, right? Yeah, yes, we so. do that sometimes. <laughs> okay. Uh, second case is from the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to have you talk a little bit about uh, synagogues. So this is uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Uh, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as uh, one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, uh, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. So we see a couple of things happening here in the synagogue. Jesus enters and teaches there, and then a man with an unclean spirit comes there. Now, what was a synagogue, and what was its function or purpose? Like, what do you, as an archaeologist, see when you're, you know, you read this text? What does it kind of evoke in you? Well, I see a building, and I imagine what the building looks like based on other century, other first-century synagogues found in the region. Now, two at a town called Magdala on the Sea of Galilee, and one in a town called Gamla, which is north, or sorry, it's uh, east of the Sea of Galilee in Galanitis. And so we know what synagogues probably look like. They're not identical to one another, just like all churches are not identical. But uh, we know generally what they look like. So I imagine Jesus in this kind of setting. So that's kind of the first thing that I do. But even the fact that I do that is significant because for a long time, before anybody started digging up first century synagogues, one of the arguments put forward most famously by a guy named Howard Clark Key was that when we see synagogue in the gospel, we should not think of a building. Or not necessarily a building, it could be in a building, but it could be any building, because the word, of course, synagoge simply means gathering, and then it comes to be the gathering place, and eventually it becomes to be identified with Jewish gatherings. But when we see it in the Gospels, it could mean simply a gathering of people, or it could be in a house, it could be really in any building. 
Well, based on archaeological excavations now, we say, well, we're, we're, we think we have some grounds to say that probably as early as the first century AD in any case, uh, that when we see synagogue mentioned in the Gospels, that probably does reflect the fact that a village with a, a village or city with a Jewish population is going to build a building to house synagogue practices. And of course, in the next thing we begin thinking about is what happened in synagogues. That was another piece of the debate. And it's still ongoing. And, and one of those is, well, at this time, because the temple is still standing in Jerusalem, that's the primary locus of, of religious practices during pilgrimage, if people can get down there. Uh, but the synagogue, it's mostly uh, a place for kind of town hall meetings or council meetings, maybe courts. Uh, but probably some religious practices, primarily reading of Torah. And where that comes from actually is an inscription found in Jerusalem, uh, found in debris, probably from the destruction in 70, that mentions a synagogue and mentions the practice of studying Torah there. So people have kind of conceded, okay, studying of Torah. But when Josephus mentions getting into synagogues, it's almost always in preparation for the war against the Romans, close to the year 70, and he's talking about these arguments that they're having about who's going to do what, who's going to be in charge of the Galilee, those kinds of things. And that's the primary purpose of synagogues. And I think if you expand your view and you look in the Gospels and Josephus and in inscriptions uh, from in and around Israel, you actually find, actually in Acts as well, you find many practices, including the practices of prayer, uh, and not just reading of Torah, but instruction in how to live Torah. And I call that moral instruction or instruction in righteousness. Uh, as a matter of fact, before they start arguing in, in this, the, the event I'm talking about that Josephus mentions, they pray first. So they held their prayers and then they, then they yell at one another. Uh, and we see this event in Mark, and that's the healing of somebody with a, an unclean spirit. Uh, there are a couple of other places that hint that something like this might be going on. So, for example, the, the book of James mentions actually uh, healing. Uh, he doesn't mention it within uh, synagogue, but he does mention it within the idea of a church. <laughs> he uses a different word, ecclesia. Uh, so there's a possibility, and I think it's reasonable to think that what we're looking at here is a first century practice that is miraculous or divine healing in synagogues. And, uh, and that suggests that the, the guy with the unclean spirit is there in order to be exercised or healed, as we have other people in the Gospels who are healed in synagogues. And of course, then that sort of explodes uh, what I'm thinking about out into other areas because uh, we know from archaeology we get all kinds of evidence that people cared about purity. Uh, so we have these ritual baths, these stepped pools that people are stepping down into. We're pretty sure they're ritual baths because they don't look like Roman bathtubs. There's really no uh, plumbing to get water into and out of them. That They mostly accept just water runoff. Uh, which means that that water could get really yucky. <laughs> it wouldn't be very good for bathing in. So we think it's used to render people and objects ritually pure. And we find them all over the place. We find them you know, in 
associated with houses. We find them associated with industry. We find sometimes that inside houses, uh, we certainly find them around the temple in Jerusalem, around the Temple Mount. So they're all over the place. We also think that maybe these chalk vessels might have something to do with ritual purity. Uh, we think that's one of the reasons that Jews will always set the cemetery far away or within walking distance of, but not too close to the town, maybe because they're concerned about corpse uncleanliness. So we can find concerns for purity. Certainly people come to Jesus to be made pure, lepers and a woman with a flow of blood. But one of our uh, assumptions when we see these texts is, I think, based on our readings of passages from Leviticus, is that people who were impure were somehow socially isolated uh, because Levitical rulings say that this is how it should work. So we tend to interpret these people as, as out of place when they are near Jesus or if they're in synagogues or if they're in crowds. Uh, I've recently begun to question that assumption, and that's simply because I can't think of an instance in the Gospels when anyone ever complains about an impure person being near them. Uh, this guy's right there in the synagogue. The woman with the flow of blood is pushing through a crowd and touches Jesus. Uh, no one ever brings up purity as one of the issues. Uh, the, the miraculous healing is always the issue. Uh, so... Um, so, of course, then I begin to think about uh, the social world of Jesus and where impure people are and uh, what they have access to and whether or not they're isolated and what's actually going on when they are made clean and when they are healed. Probably there is some aspect of uh, social rectification there. Uh, surely there was something about being ritually impure, especially if it were something like demon possession or leprosy or something like that. That has some kind of implications, but maybe not nearly as severe as we sometimes imagine. And what was the structure of a synagogue like? What did it have a particular form that's repeated in different cities? Uh, and then what was inside? What would you encounter when you walked into a synagogue? Well, all the synagogues that we've found that date to the first century, both in Galilee, uh, we first started finding them down south in Judea. They're all an open hall, and they all, whether or not they're small, well, I shouldn't say all, most, <laughs> whether they're small or fairly large, divide the interior space with columns. So you have columns holding up beams that hold up the roof, uh, but they also arrange things on the interior so that they're, they're uh, along the exterior walls, they will line benches, usually made out of stone, sometimes they're plastered, sometimes tiers of benches. So that if you're seated on those benches and looking into the interior where we think is where the action is happening, say the reading of Torah or something like that, you're, uh, you might be sitting behind a column. You can actually do what's called a view, set, a view shed analysis where you can kind of map out on a plan, say at the synagogue at Gamla, you know, what somebody could see if they're sitting on a certain tier and how much of the interior is blocked from their view. And it's, it really becomes quite interesting to think that they're apparently not thinking about sight lines uh, when they're building synagogues. Uh, it was actually my father who, who, who noticed this and thought about it and, and published on it. And he, he finally decided that, uh, that they're recapitulating what happens in the temple in Jerusalem. 
If you're in the Jerusalem temple, you have three courts that probably most of your viewers have heard about. One is called the court of Gentiles. And all that means is that Gentiles can proceed no closer to the temple than that court. It's by far the largest court. It's huge. Uh, and then from there, we go through a gate called the court of men. Again, that means that, sorry, court of women. It doesn't mean that only women are there. It means that women can proceed no further. So I think probably many practices happen there with all Israelites gathered, all Jewish people gathered. And then we can proceed beyond that to what's called a court of men, where other practices happen, primarily sacrifice. So when, when you're in the court of men and the court of women, one of the things that we see in all of our reconstructions based on Josephus and the Mishnah is this open courtyard surrounded by porches that are set off by columns so that if you're in the shade uh, in that porch and looking at what's going on either looking at the one reading Torah or the one who's leading in the singing of Psalms or if you're in the court of Israelites if you're observing sacrifice of any kind you're in the position of having to peer around columns in order to do it so one of his hypotheses was that synagogues with their design are recapitulating aspect of temple worship. So that if, if he's right about that, then synagogue practices are not entirely other than and thought of as a separate institution from the temple. Different people are in charge. Priests are in charge of what goes with priests and Levites of what goes on in the temple. And they're, they're not in charge of what happens in synagogues so far as we can tell. But we think uh, the language that we use from a guy named Will Deming is that these practices orient us toward the temple in Jerusalem. And sometimes we think that's literally the case. Certainly it is later on. You know, these days, for example, if you're worshiping in a synagogue, at some point everyone faces toward Jerusalem. Hmm. Uh, and we begin to notice at some point later than Jesus' lifetime, when they start building synagogues, they orient them toward Jerusalem. That is, the axis is on a north-south uh, line, and the main entrance is facing down toward the south, uh, down toward Jerusalem. In Jesus' day, uh, not necessarily the case, but maybe they're oriented toward Jerusalem in other ways. The other thing I've heard about that structure with the seats all around the outside wall is that it may suggest that the teaching that was done in the synagogue was more dialogical. So it wasn't one person standing up in front and then mm. teaching everyone, which is how Christians often imagine churches working. But it could have been, you know, someone reads from the Torah and then people from various places around the walls contribute their interpretations or, or whatever. I don't know what you think about that, that idea, but I wonder if it could be related to this passage where it's talking about how Jesus' teaching is with authority, mm. uh, and if that has something to do with him, the way that he engages with that kind of debate that's going on in the synagogue. Well, there may be something to that idea. You know, when Paul goes to the, the in Max, Acts, it's called a place of prayer, not a place of gathering. But he goes to this prayer place outside of Philippi. He finds women gathered there, and, uh, and there they engage in discussion. So maybe, yeah, maybe there's something to this idea. In, in the Gospel of Luke, when he's handed the scroll of Isaiah, he preaches the shortest sermon ever after handing it back. You know, today this is fulfilled. And, but there's response. Uh, and it's, you know, so yeah, maybe there is something to this dialogical or dialectical approach. Great. Well, at the very end of our episode, we like to ask our guest uh, for a blurb. It could be a book, uh, but it doesn't have to be. It could be some kind of hack or 
something that's helped you get through the semester. It could be your favorite pickaxe for doing digs, <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or brush for brushing the bulks. On <laughs> you know, I had but not thought of like that. Whatever you'd like to recommend to our listeners. Okay, so if we're, if we're talking about archaeological tools, my first blurb is for the uh, five-inch Marshalltown trowel, which is no longer made according to the old pattern. So not a new one. you got to find an old one. Uh, okay. so, that's, so that's a tool blurb. Uh, but uh, to keep in the genre of what we're engaged in right now, I'm going to give a blurb or shout out to the Friends of ASOR webinars. ASOR stands for American Society of Overseas Research. And they started producing these webinars. I've done a couple of them, but uh, there's a whole bunch of them out there now. Now, you have to pay for them, but all of your money supports scholarships for people who want to go on archaeological digs, primarily for students. So there's that. Uh, there's also a free YouTube uh, channel called Just So You Know by somebody named E.R. Brown. Now, she is, a, I think, a graduate student in Bible, but very interested in archaeology. These are short little YouTube uh, videos that are uh, very nicely produced, uh, very engaging. Uh, she speaks to archaeologists and biblical scholars about the Bible and archaeology. And I think your readers would enjoy both of those. Well, James, thank you so much for digging into this topic of the connection between archaeology and I was and waiting. I was gospel. wondering what, what you were going to do. We're grateful for all that you unearthed. Oh, well, man. Must stop there. Um, we look forward to your forthcoming book yes. on this subject, and then we'll update our listeners on that when it comes out. Uh, and for our listeners, if you have an opportunity to go to Apple Podcasts and Give us a five-star rating for this podcast. It really does help get the word out. And you uh, don't have to dig very far. You don't, I mean, yes, right. Okay, gonna... <laughs> That's one way that you could, you know, your light could shine. There you go. Uh, yeah, we, we, nice. we do appreciate it. And we appreciate you, James, um, as a colleague and also as a guest now on the Two Testaments. So thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed this. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zelda, and the team in the Sanford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion.